Hello, this is the Public Authority Podcast where we interact with experts and researchers at the Feroz Laje Institute for Africa to understand how public authority and public authority research impacts the real world. podcast examines aid delivery, development initiatives, localization, access to justice and service provision across Africa. The Public Authority podcast is created by LSE's Center for Public Authority and International Development, CPAID, at the Ferozaji Institute for Africa. In today's episode, we'll be looking at one of CPAID's research projects that was very essential in the International Criminal Court trial and eventual conviction of Dominic Ongwen, a former commander in the Lord's Resistance Army, commonly known as the LRA. For almost 20 years, Northern Uganda was terrorized by the LRA, a rebel group led by notorious leader Joseph Kony. According to the UN, over 100,000 people lost their lives in this conflict, with several thousands of children abducted and turned into child soldiers. In 2005, the ICC indicted five of LRA's topmost commanders, including Dominic Ongwen. Ongwen was later captured in 2015 and convicted at The Hague in 2021 after being found guilty of war crimes and crimes against humanity. Ongwen was later sentenced to 25 years in prison. Hello, my name is Agri and welcome to the Public Authority Podcast. Today I'm joined by Professor Tim Allen and Jacqueline Natingo and these are researchers at the Feroz Laji Institute for Africa. Now, the duo will be speaking about their decades-long work in northern Uganda and how this research aided the successful prosecution of Dominic Ongwen at the ICC last year. Let's just get started, shall we? Uh, I'll start with you, Tim. Could you please tell us a bit about this work that has been going for nearly three decades in northern Uganda? Well, um, actually, my, my uh, first period of time in this region goes back a long way to the early 1980s, um, you know, well before uh, Joseph Connie and the Lord's Resistance Army began their operations. I, I had a rather strange way of arriving in this area. Um, I was actually employed by the Sudan government at the time to teach in secondary schools. And then I began doing research in the region. I originally wrote about, um, you know, in terms of the Acholi people, about the the Holy Spirit movement of Alice uh, Omar Laquena, um, and of course I followed the issue with um, with with the emergence of the Lord's Resistance Army, um, and then in two thousand and four I was asked if I would um, go back and work in the region uh, again, following up on my earlier work, but also sort of interpreting what was going on. There was a lot of concern among international agencies who've been involved in the region about the referral of the Lord's Resistance Army to the International Criminal Court. And the main concern, particularly of organisations like Save the Children, was that the Lord's Resistance Army had forcibly recruited uh, hundreds, probably thousands of children. And a, a really serious concern was, well, with the referral to the International Criminal Court, 
would those children become extremely vulnerable in that the LRA would not want to have witnesses testifying and might even be um, motivated to kill them. I mean, many of them have been killed before, but you know, to kill thousands more. So there's a real concern about that. So what then is the connection uh, between this kind of work that you just uh, told us and, um, and at what point does it get involved into the case of Dominic Ogwe? I mean, the referral took place in, Jackie, you'll correct me if I'm wrong, it was 2003, I think, at the end of 2003 in December, and it was announced by President Museveni uh, and the chief prosecutor of the ICC at, at a press conference in London, actually. Um, and so that was the referral of the situation involving the Lord Resistance Army. And then it was um, in uh, 2005, I think it's correct, that, that warrants were issued yeah. by five of the um, leading commanders of the LRA. Yeah. Um, uh, I think they, they'd been issued secretly before that, but they were announced publicly in 2005. On when was one of those five commanders i suppose it was mainly for the instrumental violence that he was you know that he was the the, the warrant w- was issued and i think the expectation was that you know of the five he perhaps was not the most because important. it was the list ranking day. it was kind of you know not the most important you know but then you know you know joseph connie is still alive um vincent otti the second in command was basically assassinated by joseph connie mm-hmm. others have been killed yeah. and ong wen ended up being the one who was finally arrested so i'll just come to jackie then i understand you been a victim of the lra yourself how does it feel to know that uh, you've worked on this uh, research that is definitely going to be crucial in the conviction of one of the commanders. How, how does that feel? When Dominic handed over himself, I was uh, excited and I became very curious to follow um, the trial every time. I feel really great and happy that at least for once um, justice has been served for the victims in general. And um, most in particularly for those who um, endured the sexual violence through his hands. People will start appreciating research in a way that um, it, it has opened the eyes even when the judges were using this. Most of it was something that we have been digging deeper and deeper and the outcome is very clear. And I was very happy and excited to see Tim standing there with his suit and uh, you know testifying and I was like, this is it. And this is the person I've been working with and this is something that today I feel that it has really come out something that I wanted to do ever since that how can I really feel how can I do something for my colleagues at school that were abducted and taken for long and they you know they went through a lot of things how what can I really do to feel that I've done something for them and I think this research really made me um, felt part of it I can imagine uh, having gone through all that and uh, you with your uh, all the groups of people that were abducted and, and suffered at the time at the hands of LRA, for you to be able to contribute something as massive as this, uh, I, I know, I really understand that you you can only be so proud. And uh, we also team in, uh, in his suit, uh, did a great job. And uh, just maybe you could tell us a bit about that. I know a lot of your work 
uh, has definitely had great impact in, in society. But then what makes this specific one um, uh, stand out and how did you feel uh, you uh, taking the stand as a witness uh, expert at the ICC? I thought you were going to ask me then about wearing the suit, actually. <laughs> um, uh, <laughs> I mean, that's what, when I went back to Uganda, after I'd been a witness, you know, it was filmed and shown in Uganda, and, mm -hmm. and I was thinking, well, are people going to say strange things? You know, are they going to say, what were you doing being a witness in, you know, at the International Criminal Court? Why should you be involved in that? Why should, you know, somebody from London be a witness in, in the trial and so on? But actually, most of the comments were about the suit and about what I looked like, <laughs> and nobody had ever seen me in a suit before. Yeah. I hadn't seen myself in a suit very often. I think I looked a bit strange in it, actually, but people were quite impressed that I was wearing. Um, I mean, I think the whole thing with the ICC and being a witness for me was a... Well, I, in one way, it was a kind of honour to be asked to be the first bit. So, I mean, I, I was a witness for the prosecution, but only in a formal sense. Yeah. My role was not to provide evidence as such against uh, Dominic Ongwen. Yeah. It was to set the context um, in which these alleged crimes had occurred. Um, uh, I mean, one of the most interesting things for me about, about it was after spending you know, two days giving evidence, at the end of it, the, uh, the uh, defence uh, uh, barrister came up and embraced me, um, you know, and thanked me. It was a because he he he's a he's from northern Uganda, and so we had a sort of a northern Ugandan moment right, in the yeah. courtroom, <laughs> and you know the, the 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 prosecution barrister was sort of wondering what on earth was going on, and the judges were looking, at what what's happening, you know. But it was um it was quite funny in a way, um. So you know, I was asked some pretty difficult questions and so on, and, and pushed a bit, but it it it. It, but my role was to try to lay things out and um, and to try to explain the quite complicated political, social and um, cultural context in which these crimes had occurred. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's interesting because uh, both the defence and the uh, prosecution equally appreciated uh, your contribution. No wonder um, the barista was... Uh, uh, hugging you in appreciation. But why was it important that the judges uh, hope we was involved in the case understand the context that we're dealing with, understand the cultural uh, aspects of Achori, uh, it could be about violence, about sexual norms and stuff like that. What, what was it very crucial in this case that that context is well laid? I had to write. I wrote a, a report for the court beforehand. When in fact most of my testimony to the prosecution was taking taken from this um, background report that I produced. Um, and what I tried to do in that testimony and in and in that report was to um, it, it, it explain the, the context in which these terrible. Um, events have occurred because one of the one of the problems with the Lord Resistance Army and with Joseph Connie is that the LRA and Connie himself has um, has been de have been demonized and you know they've been demonized partly for political purposes by the Uganda government you know because you know there's a sort of they presented as a kind of barbaric periphery that was you know and the 
um, the, the country being sort of protected by the president and, 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 and his government. So, you know, it served political purposes. But the LRA um, um, got picked up by, by media organisations, by journalists looking for a sensational story. Yeah. You know, there was this this um, this remarkable campaign um, uh, associated with so-called invisible children, like the NGO Connie, and the Connie twenty twelve. Yeah. You know, which you know, thousands, millions of people across the world became engaged with. So he became this sort of this weird demonic figure, Joseph Connie. You know, like a, 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 the worst person a, in the world. Uh, yes, exactly. And um, to all of that, it. it, 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 it it was kind of hard to see the history and the context. I mean, looking at this situation historically in this region, you know, that that area of the Upper Nile was brutally affected by um, slave and ivory trading in the late 19th century. I mean, many of the identities of people in that region were forged out of that violence. And large-scale abduction of... Um, of 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 men, you know, forcibly recruited into armed forces. You know, w- w- it, w- it it occurred on a huge scale, mm-hmm. and women were taken for sexual purposes. And you know, that history, which isn't that long ago, you know, it, it, it doesn't contone the violence at all. It just is. You know, there is a context to it, and the the outbreaks of spirituality in that region. Mm-hmm. Um, have been enormously significant, you know, long before Joseph Kony or Alice Laquena um, and, and the spirit cults, spirituality became absolutely central to the Christian churches. And I also understand that uh, this work, this research and uh, the report that you submitted was uh, part of a proposal to to have uh, victims, this sexual violence uh, be able to testify in a safe and uh, an easy way and eventually seven women were actually uh, involved in the testifying in this particular case so Jackie uh, could you tell us why this is this was very important that we we get uh, these accounts of these women and uh, how did your work help to do for them to do this in a safe and, and, and an easy way? They were to testify, to give evidence and feel that they were part of the process of uh, ICC and um, that they were part and uh, they were also a backup of our research. And also our work made it more safe for them. We presented the, the findings so that it would really not expose them a lot. It was just like a confirmation, talking to them was a confirmation of what we have already, you know, talked about and tried to present. So it was less for them to be exposed and, you know, like as witness or people to point fingers at them that this is the person who testify. And I think up to now, it's very difficult also for Dominic to know who exactly testify among the women for him because he had many so who exactly the seven was because they we presented and then the names were not given and then also the the hiding they were not exposed and I think it helps the vic- the victims also to be you know cross-examined before the trials like in Uganda ahead of time and it saved also I think ICC in a way on issues of transportation and all that it was more easy like to come and already they know the people they were going to talk to and they were you know interviewing them and trying to get the information that you know just to find and 
confirm what has already been said and what exactly would rhyme with what our findings was talking about. You hinted on this earlier, Tim, that um, there were issues, especially in the early 2000s, about the ICC being uh, involved uh, in convicting some of these uh, uh, rebel leaders when they're captured. Maybe people didn't understand uh, the role of the ICC at that time, but also because actually have their own own traditional way of uh, of handling uh, such such matters and sort of forge reconciliation. But at the end of it, uh, there seem to be some compromise now because I think uh, uh, both parties sort of reached at a point where they say, okay, let, let the ICC go on. Okay, so could you just tell us how exactly the work or your involvement achieved this sort of compromise between the traditional uh, uh, involvement and uh, and the fact that it was ICC. When Jackie and I first started um, doing this work on the ICC back in 2004, I think it's fair to say that we were both a bit concerned about the way in which um, Acholi systems of accountability, rituals, were being foregrounded as an alternative to the International Criminal Court and as a way of resolving the war. Various rituals were highlighted. What one, you know, there was one in particular, a matter or put, was, um, was emphasised very strongly, which was meant to be a ritual that would allow for forgiveness and reconciliation to occur, whereby the you know the a representative of the perpetrator of violence would would drink a particular concoction with those that had suffered and they were you know they would move on together with with forgiveness and it was very much very much imbued with a kind of a christian notion of forgiveness actually um but within you know within the acholi language i mean um Jackie can look more about this than, than I can, but within the Acholi language, the terms being used were not forgiveness in the Christian sense. It was more like a moving on. In a way, it was a allocating of accountability that through that ritual, the perpetrator would agree um, himself and his family to provide compensation to those who had suffered. It was a way of bringing somebody who had done something appalling back into social relations so that they could be held to account and also it was done for situations of of murder and you know individual murder and um and extreme abuse it wasn't it wasn't a ritual that was meant to deal with thousands of young people including children being forcibly abducted you know made to kill their relatives you know raped tortured in the most appalling ways it wasn't it wasn't intended for that. And to try to imbue it with that meaning struck me as deeply problematic. But of course, on the other hand, you know, I, I'm an anthropologist and, you know, I've worked on these rituals most of my career. I'm fascinated by them and I know, I understand how they work and what they mean and how they kind of create the possibilities of of mutuality often in very difficult circumstances. They're, they're part of the social glue. And the International Criminal Court, by its statute, has to work in a complementary way. You know, it's required by the statute to work in complementary ways. And so I think there has been, to some degree, a kind of meeting of minds, if you like. And the, uh, the Criminal Court ha- has been required to engage with such things and think about what 
what the meaning is of these sorts of rituals and how externally imposed, if you like, justice according to internationally agreed principles rhymes or contradicts with those yeah. those procedures. There, there's clearly stuff to learn from what occurs locally. But what we should learn is it's not that all things local are wonderful, but that there is a mix and some things local are actually violent and awful, particularly for young women. Yeah, yeah. Jackie knows much more about this than yeah, I yeah. do. Yeah, Jackie, if you could go on, please. Uh, just tell us why, because earlier you mentioned that you, 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 you felt maybe the traditional approach would have been insufficient in some areas as well. Um, when we look at all the tribes in Uganda were almost affected by this war. People were abducted, and each and everyone have their cultural way or traditional way of justice. But then we were trying to look at only Matopo, to reconcile the whole country on this issue of LRA because it was headed by the actually um, uh, child that is Joseph Coyne. And this wouldn't really, you know, work out. And the best alternative that we've that you know is would really you know reconcile and i think everyone now feels much more happy about it is the uh, the the icc uh, coming in to take lead because if we were to use matoput there was going to be another conflict because every tribe was going to say that how can it and then also in another way they people that were coming back, because Matoput would deal with somebody to accept that really I've done it. But most people that were returning, even the commanders, they were saying that I was false. I did not do it. So who was really accountable for what has happened to people who are living in IDPs, to the massacre that has taken place, to the sexual abuses, all these things that has happened. Nobody was really coming forward. But for Matoput, you would really come forward, as Tim has explained before, that, you know, this is what I've done, and then we are going to compensate. And among, if we were to look at that, who was going to compensate the community that have lost their relatives, that have lost their children, that have lost their property. So we find that it's really something that was going going to cause more trouble within the community or the society as a whole and it wouldn't really reconcile, reconcile people. So uh, it's not over yet because we know there's still a few other more commanders. I mean we only know about Connie now from the list that was released in 2005 but there's definitely more commanders. So where do you see uh, this precedent coming in or helping in future uh, cases like this? And it doesn't have to be with just LRA. It could be with any other in war criminals, especially where you have sexual and gender-based violence involved. My feeling about this particular case, I mean, there were appalling acts of violence for which Ongwen has been found guilty. Um, and there were many others who perpetrated appalling acts of violence. Uh, I felt an important part of this case, though, as Jackie's already alluded to, was the gender dynamic. And I think that that's been a really important development that's occurred through this case. That when we were initially talking to the uh, International Criminal Court staff, not just in the prosecutor's office, 
um, there were concerns about whether or not rape could be prosecuted. Mm -hmm. I mean, rape has had a very problematic history in international criminal law. Rape was not prosecuted at Nuremberg. I mean, at that partly because some of the Allies states, Soviet Union, but not just the Soviet Union, had forces that were raping, and so it was it was not prosecuted. And rape can be a, a, a difficult. I mean, it shouldn't be difficult. Perhaps one should say, but but it is often difficult because where if there is a focus on consent mm -hmm. how do you give consent in a situation that's right. militarized and violent and where is the borderline between consent and survival and economic activities that people indulge in in order to be able to survive and the sexual act in, in the way that it's talked about is not talked about in the same way as it's talked about for example in the UK in terms of you know, the uh, who takes pleasure and how they take pleasure in it and so what is consent in those circumstances what is rape and what is not rape and so I think a key point about the research that we presented and, and Holly Porter was very involved in this as well was that the idea of rape was broadened in the prosecution to sexual and gender based crimes I, I suppose our feeling and I'm speaking both for maybe for Jackie and myself, our feeling was if they were going to prosecute on when for anything, sure. it had to be for sexual and gender-based crimes because these were, in some cases, prepubescent girls who were, you know, forcibly penetrated and in, in ways that, in the details of it are so shocking. And um, we felt that, that, that to be able to secure some sort of conviction around that would be really important. Yeah. And so on when was found guilty of enforced pregnancy and enforced marriage. Uh, and in fact, the, the issue of consent was put to one side. It wasn't really focused on. It was, if you like, the act and the result looked at if, if like in a different way mm. which allowed for that prosecution to be pushed through and the fact that on when was found guilty of multiple counts of sexual and gender-based crimes um, I think was was appropriate in his case whatever his past and his history and the fact that he was abducted himself he he did do atrocious things to young women yeah. and holding to him him to account for that seems to me to be a positive step but it also creates the space now for future prosecute, prosecutions of sexual and gender-based crimes which don't focus on this issue of consent which which has sort of stymied previous yeah. attempts to prosecute how about yeah. how about you jackie do you just so uh, sort of feel that um Yes, because thanks to this case, thanks to how this ended and how the findings and how your your work was involved, there's a, there's a great chance that such cases are going to be much easier to 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 be approached by by a court like the ICC in future. I think so because this is something that you know um, rebel groups were formed and they would use women as a tool 
in the way they want and it, they were just going free and I think this has really given them a shock also for themselves that their serious law now that deals with it. There's going to be little about women, uh, you know, sexual violence because they know that when they do that, um, the law is waiting for them. But also I would still think that locally the people who really also sexually abuse the women, they should be really accountable for what they did. They shouldn't be left like that. The fact that they have got amnesty, they should still really account for it. I shouldn't be too optimistic. You know, violent people will act violently and, you know, not many of them end up in a court of law and there are dreadful things that occur in war zones. Um, you know, by no means only in Africa. I mean, look at what's happening in Ukraine. I mean, it's... Yeah. But, but possibly the... The, the model of the trial in Uganda is something that will be useful in future Ukrainian yeah. prosecutions. Mm. Um, mm. You know, and we're already seeing see, seeing that. So, if one chooses to be optimistic, one can or, or, one can find a way of being so. But you know, we do live in a violent world where violent <laughs> people do terrible things to yeah. other people. Well, uh, so then uh, maybe it's uh, important to point out that uh, we're not talking about just one piece of work. We're talking about uh, a series of books, articles, uh, uh, journal articles. And uh, where would one access uh, this kind of work? And uh, what kind? What are some of those key titles uh, uh, that people should be looking out for? Well, we. Um we do at the Firoz Lauji Institute for Africa. We do have a commitment to try to, as far as we can, mm. to make work as widely accessible as possible, including work that would otherwise end up in gated journals that no one would read except other academics. So we try to make everything open access. So I mean, the work that Jackie and I have done, all those papers are open access. So I mean, they can go on the Institute website or look at my website and all those articles can be downloaded. Yeah. Um, it gets a bit more difficult with books, you know, because you know, publishers often don't want to make a book open access because then they won't make any money on the book. But we are moving forward with that. So we've, you know, we are trying to make books open access as well. And I should also just say that, you know, Jackie and I and others, um, uh, you know, ha have been continuing the work. So, you know, we're still working with these people after they've returned, looking at what's happened in some cases to these children who, remember thousands of children who finally returned from the LRA. Mm. They were taken as children, terrible things happened to them, and then they've been let, you know, they, they've been, in theory, reintegrated. But their experiences have been pretty, pretty yeah. dreadful. And yeah. so, you know, what, our work at the moment, together with um, uh, engaged politicians and activists, has been to try to provide better protection for yeah. people who have returned. Yeah, yeah I've, I've, I've read uh, uh, some of your recent work about uh, those sort of people returning back. And it's, it's important to know that you're still carrying on the work because integration wasn't as smooth as everyone thought it would be. It's, a, it's actually a really important point, actually, mm -hmm. because right across Africa and, and other places as well, there is this idea of, you know, reintegration, you know, rehabilitation, disarmament and so on. And these sort of DDR programmes are implemented as if we all know what's going on. <laughs> but, you know, you take a situation like that and you throw people 
back on their own resources, it, it's not going to be like what's in some UN report. Mm-hmm. You know, you, Northern Uganda is not exceptional in that in, in that way, and it is extraordinary how little information there is um, about the long-term experiences of people after they've returned from war and violence. Yeah, and I think that should really do it. I would like to thank you, Jackie and Tim, for having joined me today and to sort of help us and whoever is listening to the podcast get an idea of how much research can actually impact the, the real world and how crucial it is that for a case as important as Dominic Ongwens, uh, there is enough empirical evidence of the cultural context and the perspectives of those who are greatly affected by the conflict. Find out more about Tim and Jackie's research and indeed all the amazing, incredible work going on at the Feroz Laji Institute for Africa. Please visit any of our digital platforms. Visit our website at www.lse.sc.uk forward slash Africa. Or you can follow us on Twitter and on LinkedIn at Africa at LSE. But also, be sure to check out our blog, Africa at LSE, for all the exciting articles summarizing the Institute's latest and most outstanding research and debates on issues related to Africa. This podcast was produced by me, Agrenyon Rajkovela, at LSE's Feroz Laje Institute for Africa. Until next time, bye-bye.